Well, welcome to the podcast, Digging In with the Missouri Farm Bureau. I'm Janet Atkinson, your host for this week's program. We have a couple special guests joining us here this week. We have Dan Ingeman. He is part of the team, the legislative team here with the Missouri Farm Bureau. And we are also joined by Travis Cushman. He is with the American Farm Bureau Federation. And gentlemen, before I dig into your background, I'm just going to have you guys talk a little bit about your own background. So Dan, let's start off with yourself. Uh, Introduce yourself to everyone. Yeah, Janet, good to be with you. And, and Travis, uh, good to talk to you today. Um, yeah, I, I've been at Missouri Farm Bureau for about a year and a half, uh, handling regulatory affairs. So Travis and I interact on a lot of different things, uh, the, covering everything that's happening at the federal level. Certainly, uh, we stay very busy there. And uh, also, you know, all things regulatory at the state level, too. So involving Missouri DNR, um, you know, I just got back from some Missouri River meetings, so uh, river issues are part of my portfolio as well. So uh, certainly uh, there's no shortage of things to do on a weekly basis. <laughs> they definitely keep you guys hopping without a doubt. Now, also, as I mentioned, we're joined by Travis Cushman with AFBF. Travis, uh, give us a little bit of your background as well. Yeah, thank you so much, Janet. Uh, I'm excited to be here. So uh, I'm an attorney with American Farm Bureau Federation. I oversee our litigation and public policy uh, uh, legal side of things. I I started off uh, my career doing law firm type stuff. I spent 10 years uh, in law firms, did five years in Oklahoma, five years out here in D.C. I did a year at a think tank called the Cato Institute, where I worked on amicus briefs to the Supreme Court, um, but came over to Farm Bureau about five years ago to work on uh, a huge, huge, really fun, exciting range of topics Uh, on the legal side of things. Well, of course, and that brings us to why you're joining us this week. Um, I hate to say that, you know, you had some downtime that was drastically ruined this month by the Supreme Court. And that, of course, comes to Prop 12. Anybody involved in agriculture, we're fully aware of Prop 12 and that coming out of California. Um, That kind of had to ruin the day a bit for you. Yeah, it, it, it was a tough one. You know, we, we've been involved in this case uh, for several years now. It's, it's been a, a, uh, you know, a passion of ours uh, you know, on a personal level and then obviously on a work level. We've put a lot of time, uh, not just AFBF, but other state farm bureaus have been very helpful. Um, you know, uh, the, the U.S. administration has been very helpful under both the, the Trump and Biden administration. They've been very helpful with us on this case. Um, we, we filed this lawsuit what, three years ago or so now. So it's been a, a large part of my professional life at this point, right? Do um, you mind if I give some background on what, what Prop 12 is? No, go right ahead. Please do. Yeah, a lot of folks may already be familiar with it, but for those that aren't, um, it was a ballot initiative that was passed in California back in 2018 uh, by a majority of voters. Um, the ballot initiative, amongst other things, it, it requires that all pork sold in the state must have been raised with certain requirements that no one complies with. Uh, why doesn't anybody comply with these? It, it was it was written by the Humane Society of the United States, HSUS, a group of animal activists, and uh, they drafted the rule in a way that you know they're asking for things that no one essentially currently does. Um, the California voters didn't know that when they when they passed it. But what's problematic for us is you know we don't we don't get involved you know in, in how a state wants to regulate farms in its own state. The problem with Prop Twelve is is no pork is raised in California. This law essentially exports their values uh, on other states. So, you know, Iowa, Missouri, North Carolina, you're growing a hog. You don't even know where it's going to end up. But now you're going to be required to comply with these California laws, uh, even though no one currently 
raises animals this way. Yeah, Travis, th thanks for that that background. Uh, it's important to know, like, you know, how we got here. Um, so, can you walk us through the the claims that AFBF and National Pork Producers Council uh, made in this case? Yes. So, um, so AFBF, uh, we teamed up with the National Pork Producers Council and PPC, as you said, and we sued them under the U.S. Constitution under what's called the Dormant Commerce Clause. I, I don't want to get too in the weeds to you all, but the U.S. Constitution uh, has what's called the Commerce Clause, which allows the U.S. government to regulate commerce between the states. And the Dormant Commerce Clause is, is the reading of that, which means if the U.S. government has that authority, states don't. States should not be able to set the standards for production in other states. And there's, there's you know, if, if you're a historian, um, you may recall the Articles of Confederation. Uh, which we were initially organized under, uh, they failed because you had states enacting trade barriers and uh, restricting trade. And that's why that version of the states wasn't working very well. And so, you know, Madison and all the great architects got together and, and they created the U.S. Constitution in response to that. And we have tons of great, you know, uh, quotes and, and research from that time period where people are saying, the U.S. Constitution is, is there because farmers need to be able to sell their goods across state lines. They need to be able to do that uh, and do that freely. And we had that was a large uh, impetus for the U.S. Constitution being the way it is. So this is a claim we made. Of course, you know, policy-wise, might think, of course, we should win, but you need a legal basis. The legal basis is the U.S. Constitution, uh, providing that the U.S. government is regulates the commerce between the states, not the states themselves. They they cannot uh, force other states to adopt regulations on how to, how to run businesses. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, just, you know, I appreciate the, the uh, explanation, you know, for our listeners about the dormant commerce clause, because there's a lot of things you could uh, come to mind when you just hear that term. And, my, uh, my goal is that people's eyes just don't glaze over. <laughs> <laughs> the dormant yeah. It was supposed to be a fun topic, guys. The yeah. US Constitution, this is history. Uh, I, I, I heard a little audio clip last night of Senator Kennedy from Louisiana, like uh, asking one of one of the, the Biden administration's uh, uh, judges up for, for confirmation about if, if she knew what the dormant commerce clause was. And apparently she needed to study up as well. So but I digress. Um, well, I mean, so, opinion, I'd argue that many more conservative justices need to study up on it also. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so. In a message that you sent out uh, to myself and you know my counterparts across the country, handle regulatory portfolios, Travis, and I really appreciate your your rundown of the, of the ruling. You called this a fractured ruling. So, can you explain the really interesting voting alliances in this decision? Yes. So, um, and it's real quick background. So, you know, we filed this case, and so we, we start the trial level. We get go to the court of appeals. And it's really hard to get the Supreme Court. Uh, they take less than 1% of cases. And so we got there. We had uh, arguments last October. So the opinion came out last week, and it was called a fractured opinion. It was 5-4. So um, there, there are nine justices total. To win, you need five of those nine, right? You need over half. And so we had four that voted for us saying we should win. Uh, of the f other five, they did, not, they did not think we should win, did not agree why we should not win. So fractured means that there's not a there's not a majority of judges that agree why that's the case. And interestingly enough here, of those five that went against us, 
they had conflicting rationales for it. So you actually, it was this crazy situation where we had six justices, six of the nine agree that we'd stated a, an appropriate theory of the case. Five believed that we'd appropriately established that, but those five did not align with the, the six that believed in our theory of the case. So we had, you know, unfortunately four that fully were in with us and those other five, some of them believed that we'd done a good enough job articulating a theory of the case, but didn't win. Another ones felt other way we should have won, but the theory of the case wasn't right. So it's 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 a quite disappointing um, that we didn't quite have that alignment we needed to get the majority of votes. Yeah, um, I, for for example, you know, again referencing you know your analysis, uh, Justice Barrett said. Uh, the courts are not equipped to balance uh, moral interests. Um, and then, you know, in, in the dissent, Justice Kavanaugh said, uh, you know, this he was concerned about this undermining uh, federalism, uh, states' authority. Uh, and he called this a blueprint for a new era where states force other states to obey uh, their moral policy preferences. And really, that's what this is all about, right? I mean, uh, because uh, I, as I understand it, the ballot language in California, uh, you know, do you uh, something like do you oppose animals being raised in a, in a cruel manner? I mean, it's very generic. And, you know, I think the average California voter probably said, well, yeah, uh, I, I oppose that. So anything you want to uh, expand upon there in terms of uh, how these different justices viewed this, the, the moral interest side of this? Yeah, that's why this case is so interesting. I think you're right. If you're, it's a ballot initiative, I don't fault a California voter for approving this, right? I mean, yeah, I want to. I don't want to have cruel practices. What does that mean? It's, I mean, no one knows what that means, right? You're signing on to whatever HSUS says it is. So the split here, it was, it was so interesting. Um, it was not a conservative, you know, liberal type split at all. Uh, the the three that were most against us, and really the two that were most against us, were the most conservative wing of the court, Gorsuch and Thomas. And they just don't believe in the theory of the case, that they don't believe in a dormant commerce clause at all. Um, it's somewhat similar to, you all may remember the abortion case from last term on Dobbs. Um, that that yes. case the court held, you know, there's no, abortion is not written in the constitution. Therefore, you know, if Congress wants to say it is, they can do it, but that's not for the courts to do. Uh, there is this major questions doctrine um, that also came out last term with uh, that West Virginia versus EPA case, but how far the the executive branch, the federal agencies can go and regulate it. The court similarly said that that's for Congress to do, that's not for other branches. So this is a similar line of judicial philosophy that Congress needs to be the one that's acting here. And so those, the more conservative branch, they were saying, you know, you, it doesn't matter if they're more, you know, what, what's at stake, that's for Congress to do. And in particular, Justice Barrett was saying you know, with, with these kinds of moral issues, that's not for courts to weigh in on. That has to be a policy issue. It's to, decided by Congress. So th that, that was her viewpoint. Um, on the other side of things, you know, I, I thought the law is for us that the Dormant Commerce Clause very much is there. As we discussed earlier, it's uh, the U.S. Constitution was created in reaction to states prohibiting farmers from engaging the free flow of commerce. And that's why we were able to, I think, get the, the implications of this are so broad, way beyond agriculture, right? I mean, we we got interest from all over the economy because everyone sees what this case means for their people. And as this case has progressed, I've even seen, I've heard of you know, some vegans that were very against us and I came out in support of us because they're realizing you know, that this, this implicates so many other things beyond agriculture. If, if 
California can export, can control how other states run their production practices, they can export their minimum wage or union labor requirements. Similarly, Texas or Florida can export their views on uh, you know, right to work or whether or not abortion can be provided to employees in other states or uh, whether or not um, illegal immigrants can be part of the workforce or not, right? That there are so many horrific types of ways that states can start now interfering with production in other states by hinging it on the similar way that, that California did. You know, our, our briefs were, weren't about that, that possibility, but a lot of other briefs come in wearing the same thing. And that's what Mrs. Kavanaugh really clenched to, saying, guys, this is a really dangerous precedent to be setting here. Um, I'd also point out the Chief Justice, Justice Roberts, who's my personal favorite justice. Uh, he's head of, he's um, the chief of the courts. He wrote the majority opinion for us, and it was a beautiful opinion explaining why you know, we did a great job arguing the case and why we should win. And he had you know, four other justices agree with him, including the newest justice, uh, Kentonji Brown-Jackson. Um, you know, a lot of people weren't really sure how she'd be viewed. You know, she's this new justice in the court that Obama, or I'm sorry, that Biden just put on. And she completely agreed as well that, that we should win. So Travis, where does this leave us? I mean, uh, a lot of folks, some folks think it's done in the water. It all is done with the SCOTUS ruling, but others think there might be a little life left. Um, based on this ruling, I think it'd be very difficult to uh, challenge Prop 12 and, and do it functionally, especially considering it will be going into place very soon. And it takes a very, very long time to get up there. I think we did an incredible job arguing the case and uh, looking at the opinions. I don't, I don't see a, a lot of wiggle room um, from what I've seen so far, uh, other than there was some, um, I, as I pointed out to you earlier, some inherent contradictions that the court had, I thought, on the majority. Uh, there were two justices that said we um, alleged appropriate theory, but don't win. But another justice say we didn't have a good theory, but we shouldn't win. They're, they're conflicting with each other. And so um, it, it was, it actually reading the opinions within them, they were arguing with each other over who had the right opinion as well. So there was some certainty there, but at least a new case coming by uh, function would be very difficult to do given the timeline of Prop 12 coming into place in the next couple months. Well, it sounds like none of us, whenever we travel, will be enjoying a pork chop on the West Coast anytime soon just because we won't be able to afford it. Uh, it's my guess. I could be wrong, but you know, that's uh, kind of the rumor out there. So uh, also, you know, this is took you to the Supreme Court, but you've also got another uh, case that is before the Supreme Court right now as well, too. And that is the Sackett case. Give us kind of an update there. It's so, so just to clarify that uh, we are not the petitioners, the, the plaintiff in that case. Uh, we've filed amicus briefs and several mm -hmm. state farm bureaus have also filed amicus briefs. Um, so that is a case involving waters of the United States, the dreaded term WOTUS, that, that evil word WOTUS. So that under the Clean Water Act, uh, EPA and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers regulates WOTUS, waters of the United States. Um, and there's this battle for 40 plus years now over what is WOTUS? What, what can the federal government regulate? And over time, you know, with this burgeoning, uh, you know, federal state, uh, executive states, uh, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and EPA have expanded the definition of WOTUS to include what we consider to be dry land features on farms, which is terrifying because you don't, you don't want the federal government to have that regulation of your dry land. And that matters because if, if they can regulate it, that means they get a permit to do anything on it. Now, permits are a problem because on average, they, they cost 
anywhere between $30,000 and quarter million dollars and take a year to get. And that's just not a, uh, you can't do that as a pharmacist. It's not a way you can conduct your business. This program was established for big industrial polluters. I think big manufacturers with, with a pipeline discharge, discharge influence into a river. That's what the Clean Water Act was meant to stop. It wasn't targeted to farming activities, but as things have expanded over time, we've gotten roped into this. And so from the agriculture side, this has been a big war for us because we, we were trying to keep uh, the federal government off of, again, what we consider to be dry land that occasionally gets wet when it rains. Yeah, Travis, thank you for that. Uh, you know, all, all this discussion today, you know, reminds me of President Hawkins' uh, comments to me recently this week. And, you know, he'll send me, you know, Wall Street Journal articles and the rest of the team, you know, in, in the morning, whether it's on uh, WOTUS, Prop 12, uh, SEC climate uh, rules, it, you know, it's like the the administrative state is huge, it, it, you know, is what, what, he, what his words to me. And, and, you know, it's a constant battle. I'm sure glad that you are, you know, uh, helping lead those efforts from American Farm Bureau. And, and we're glad to, you know, partner with you on these things. But is there anything else in terms of like big ticket items that you're, you're working on, as I would call it? Um, you, you, we mentioned it, I think, before we started this podcast about, you know, being in Nebraska next week with, uh, folks that handle regulatory portfolio and maybe just thinking through some of those issues that we'll be discussing then. But as far as our listeners here today, anything else that, uh, that, that you want to share with them? Well, so I'd go back to that second case again, because we're going to have a Supreme Court opinion on that uh, any day now. Um, so we are actively waiting for that to go down. And again, hopeful that they will uh, push back uh, how much the administration has continued to try to expand the definition of oil. So that, that the next opinion day is, is next Thursday. So to so keep on waiting for that. Um, there are so many important issues for agriculture going on right now. Um, you know, if, if I pick another one that, that's pretty interesting to me, it would be this SCC climate rule. Uh, that's just been this, this odd area that no one knows anything about because no one, no one ever deals with SEC. The SEC is the Securities and Exchange Commission and they deal with public companies. Now, I don't think you have any members that are public companies. Yeah, but we all sell to public companies you know, at the end of the day. And then apparently, you know, what's so funny in this is it's not funny. It's, you know, uh, but is that uh, Chairman Gensler and the SEC did not even realize that they were, uh, by this rule, they were going to be impacting agriculture. So I think, Travis, you and your team and, you know, us at the state level, we've been working to, uh, you know, uh, make them realize that like, hey, you, you, you bit off a lot here with this with this rule. <laughs> unbeknownst to you, but trying trying to educate uh, the regulators here, right? Yeah, it's uh, I think that's a, it's a great way to put it. They, they, I don't think they had any idea that they, they were getting involved with us when they did this. Uh, th- this rule, I mean, it's it's massive in scope. It, it almost triples the size of SEC's regulatory programs and in a single rule. And imagine if the EPA you know, or USDA had a single rule that tripled the size of, of their scope. It's, it's it's impossible to predict all the effects that would have. And as we've gone through this rule, what it would do is require public companies to report on our emissions. And so, you know, people have said, oh, well, it doesn't affect you guys. If they're reporting on our emissions, how does it not affect us? How are they going to get those emissions other than by asking them from, from us? That's expensive to do. You need to track your emissions, to get tracking software or devices on your, on your tractor and figure out how many gallons of diesel you're going in your tractors. I and mean, that's 
that's not something the average person can do very easily. Maybe if it's a massive operation, it wouldn't be as bad, but for the average farmer, that's not a reasonable request. And if all of a sudden every company that's you know, public you do business with or is in your value chain is demanding this information, that's going to completely upset, upset farming and agriculture across the country. Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, just like Prop 12, things like SEC ultimately will drive up the cost of food for consumers, un- undoubtedly. Exactly. Uh, and that, that is, that's the worst part of it all. So, uh, Janet? Well, I think you gentlemen have done an excellent job covering uh, some very in-depth issues that are very hard to simplify. <laughs> and, you know, I know that they're not going to get any simpler and more simple, but uh, it's a good conversation to have. And I appreciate you both kind of stepping up to the plate to kind of break these down. And uh, before we wrap things up, Travis, I do have to ask, what was it like arguing before the Supreme Court? Um, so I was not the one myself arguing, unfortunately. We, we had a, a expert uh, person that argues in front of the court all the time do it for us. But I, I was there in the room uh, and it was an experience of a lifetime. Uh, it, it, was, it was so much fun. Uh, you have so much respect for the institution. Um, everyone asked us incredibly thoughtful questions. Uh, it, it was it was the, a highlight of my career, sir. It was incredible. Whenever you say they ask incredibly thoughtful questions, that makes me th- sound makes me feel like um, they're all coming from a a place of heart, a place of concern, and they've not they're not keeping the politics front and center. Exactly. And again, you look at our opinion, it's, it's all over the place in terms of political yeah. persuasion. Uh, I obviously disagree with the majority. Uh, I think they did a poor job on it. But um, I mean, I respect what you know, every member of the court. They're all brilliant folks. And they're doing the best they can. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate it. Again, we've been talking with Travis Cushman. He's with the American Farm Bureau Federation. And Dan Egeman, he is part of our Missouri Farm Bureau team, joining us here for this week's Digging In podcast with the Missouri Farm Bureau. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you.